Hey lovelies, before we get started, I want to remind you that a lovely sale is still going strong. It's my way of giving back to the nurses like Shashi, who we heard from last week. They are our frontline healthcare workers and they are putting themselves in harm's way just to keep us safe. Take 40% off the entire site and you'll be giving 19% of your purchase to get PPE to make their job more doable. Get something beautiful for yourself and something critical to the people who need it most right now. Head over to impactfashionnyc.com and use code LOVELYPPE to score some great deals for a great cause. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with the founder of Lynx about grief, how losing her mother at age nine led to publishing and distributing a magazine geared towards families struggling with loss, and how that grew as an organization providing the support she never had. When you meet Sarah Rifka Cohn, she does not come off as someone who spends her days dealing with death. She is happy and smiling with kind eyes, which I guess makes her uniquely suited to do the work she does. The truth is that Sarah Rivka could do whatever she wishes. She'd be successful at pretty much anything. She just gives off that impression. But she chose to spend her career helping the children and teens whom she is uniquely qualified to assist. Hi, Sarah Rivka. How are you doing today? Great. This is wonderful. This is the nicest part of the day right now. I get to have an adult conversation. And we're going to have fun together. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's a very weird time to be working at all right now with all of the, uh, you know, coronavirus and quarantine and, and all of that. It's it's very strange. I found it very strange as a marketer also to be just to, to be working now. It's it's weird. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I don't know if you know my background, but my background actually before I started Links, which we'll talk about soon, um, I taught first, and then I worked in media and marketing for eight years. I knew about so, the media marketing. I didn't know about the teaching. So now I, now I want to pick your brain. How, yes, is, how is homeschooling working for you? <laughs> so actually, I, I will say that it's definitely better than it probably for people who don't have any teaching experience, but I'm really lucky is that I'm married to a principal. So that works even better. <laughs> I'm sure it make him in charge. Um, <laughs> I do the other homeschooling part of like the clean up your room thing. Right. Cause that's equally as important. It's really hard to be clean up your room when also they're in their rooms on in class and everything. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I have to say it's, it's moments like these that it's been a little bit overwhelming for me staying home, especially as someone who like loves to go out and especially mm-hmm. loves to just go on walks. That's been really overwhelming for me. Um, and the thought of doing that with kids is even more overwhelming to me. And it's, you know, it's, it's like moments like these that make me a little bit thankful that I don't have kids because uh, I don't know how I would do that. But either way, uh, you mentioned that you were in media marketing. Tell me about that. So yeah, basically what happened was I taught, I always wanted to teach. Like as a kid, I was always the one who was setting up fake classrooms. And as a matter of fact, my parents remind me that at the Shabbos table, when I used to like ask people different questions, I, they would give an answer. And if it was the wrong answer, I would say, oh, that's a great answer, but not the answer I'm looking for. And they were like, okay, nine-year-old that says that is going to be teaching. 
I had in my head that I wanted to teach junior high or high school, which of course I did not get any of those jobs. What did I think straight out of school? I was going to get some teenage class. Um, But I did wind up teaching fifth grade, which I promised myself was I was only going to do for a year and a great year. And then I got married and I moved from Muncie to Brooklyn and I was applying for new jobs. And I said, okay, that was nice, but that's not really what I wanted to do. I want to teach junior high. So an ad for a school that was looking for junior high teachers. And I called and the principal said, come down. And I wound up getting the fifth grade job, which was like almost <sighs> laughable. And I did that for quite a number of years. And then what happened was, thank God, um, I, I think it was when I had my twins that I decided to take a year off. And at that time I was doing links just as a side little thing. And I just started freelance writing for one of the publications. It's I'm so glad that you mentioned that you mentioned links. And this is a little bit of, of foreshadowing. We're going to go more into that later. Um, but for someone who doesn't know, just quick one sentence, what is links? Okay. So links is a nonprofit that provides emotional support to Orthodox Jewish teens who have lost a parent. Okay. So you, you're doing this on the side. You've, you've had twins, you're teaching and yeah. you're running this organization just like out of your house. Side, which we'll talk about in okay. my pantry. Okay. Very literally in my pantry. Ooh, this anyway. Fun. Okay. We'll get there. Yeah. So I was, I, I decided to do some freelance writing, got into the writing thing. People were liking it. And at some point when I decided that I had had enough of being a stay at home mom, I shot out an email to the magazine saying, I don't know if you have anything for me to do in there, but pretty much whatever you give me within the magazine world, I'll take, which was the smartest and dumbest thing to say. Um, Smartest because it got me in my foot in the door. Dumbest because I took a job that I was completely not equipped for just to be in the magazine space. And anybody who knows me will laugh out loud right now. I did editing for the home section. You have to understand, (laughs) I am as least of a home decorator, understanding of colors is like completely not my thing. I wouldn't know a green from a blue, not because I'm colorblind, but because it it doesn't matter to me. Right, you just don't care. I, yeah, so I coordinated and edited that section, but I think it's a very big business lesson is that the job was 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. every day, which sounds ridiculous. Like, what could you do in three hours? And it was four days a week. And I was making less money than my babysitter, who was taking $10 an hour for twins. And I was making $18 an hour. So I walked out with eight and she got 10 for every hour that I worked. And I say that because it was very strategic on my end. I needed the money, but much more than that. At that point, I needed just mental like (laughs) earring out if you will so you needed something to do right at the same time I always was business minded in the sense that I saw it as if I get into a field that I'm good at and I can prove I'm good at it then it will grow when I left the magazine eight years later to do links full-time and thank god they're all they've all remained really good friends I left as the features editor and sales and editorial liaison. I was doing pretty much everything that there was to be done within the magazine. And it was really a tremendous lesson for me. I, you know, when they had conferences that they wanted people to sell subscriptions at booths, I said, I'll do that. Um, They had days where they had, they were overwhelmed in different departments. I said, I'll take a half hour on the phones. 
I pretty much learned how to use the stamping machine, the copy machine, any stupid job, nothing was beneath me. And that's what made me valuable to the company at some point was because pretty much any department I had tried something in. And it was very helpful also in terms of just team spirit of just knowing that you can count on someone as a team player. And those were all skills, all the different things that I did are amazing skills that right now I'm using at Lynx. Um, and I'm so grateful for every single thing that I tried my hand at because, mm. I mean, let's take the subscription booth for a second. The first time I did an expo, I was so confident because I had already manned booths. Right. You like, already knew what you were doing. Was that was intentional to take like a little bit to, to make yourself known in every department or listen, I know you, you're a relatively friendly person. Was that just like an outgrowth of your relatively friendly, you're a very friendly person, <laughs> but was that just an outgrowth of your natural personality or was that something that you did very intentionally? I'm going to make myself useful in every department. I think it's a combination of the two. Look, I, you know, if I ever had to go back and get a degree in something, probably it would be um, something in business management. I, I always had a a feel for business. I always enjoyed anything business minded. So there probably subconsciously was a very strategic um, piece in me that said, make yourself useful and it will just help you jump into different fields. I think though, my nature is as someone is that if there's something that has to be done and it's not totally killing me, then I'll do it. Okay. There it's not totally killing me was a stress was was a piece that I had to learn much more. It oh, was yeah, not been there, done that. I was not good at boundaries in the sense that you know when you make yourself useful in a company in every department, then it's very easy for somebody to say, "Okay, I, I'm leaving early today, but Sarifka is taking over," and right. I'd be like, eh, "We didn't really have a conversation about that, right?" Right. But I always would say yes because inevitably I was just a nice person. Um, at some point, that definitely backfired for me in terms of you know, burnout in terms of just feeling like overwhelmed. And at what point do I get to say no now without looking like I'm, you know, kind of being not so nice to put it mildly. So, and it was always, of course, during crunch time that this would feel this way. Right. So Cause that's I, when it, that's when it manifests itself. That's when it comes right. out. Right. And, and you know what, and, and to be a hundred percent honest, this was a big, big journey for me on every level family-wise, career-wise, you know, and it's been, uh, if I could say that is the greatest gift, learning that has been the greatest gift in running a nonprofit. Because if you don't have boundaries when you're servicing clients in a nonprofit or when you're fundraising in a nonprofit, you will definitely suffer horrifically. And in the long run, the clients suffer the most. Right. Well, yeah, especially with the work that you do, it's very... It's intense. It's emotionally intense. And you need to keep yourself at kind of like peak emotional fitness to be able to do the kind of work that you do because it can, I can imagine it getting very draining very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It really can. It really, really can. So just to, to throw in something on the marketing point of view, it's been very interesting for me as somebody who was previously in the marketing field. And, and just to add to that, what I basically did was I would walk in when contracts were stuck in the advertising department. Or I did this as a freelance basis actually to some of the great big hospitals in the city who wanted to get their messaging out to the Orthodox Jewish community, but we're finding that Google Translate doesn't quite do the job. Mm. So it was more about like, 
how do we say in English um, this kind of message in a way that's palatable to the Orthodox community? And, and this is a very big piece. You know, if I was to go into a community that I didn't know, um, you know, in any sort of cultural difference from something that I grew up in or something that I know well, I'd have to find somebody in that community to help me with messaging, A, so it's not offensive, B, so it actually speaks to the heart of what it is that either the struggle is or whatever it is that you can actually get your mission done. So when hospitals were having a problem getting certain messaging across the Orthodox community, it was because, honestly, they didn't know where the message barrier was. So part of my job was to figure out, hey, what is this reading like to an Orthodox person? How could we phrase it differently or what could we say? Or if they would say, I don't know why, but the Orthodox community seems to be using Hospital X much more than us. We're trying to figure out what is it in our messaging that's a turnoff. And you know, that was my job was to sit there and actually iron that out and then create good marketing contracts for them. Out of so, curiosity, yeah. what's an example of something that that, that would that you would see in that? Was it just a matter of them wanting to put out Yiddish ads and then mistranslating them? Sometimes it was that, although I will say as somebody who speaks and writes in Yiddish, but it's not my first language and it's not something I'd be ever comfortable doing. Um, that wasn't it. I think a lot of times what happened was either there would be, um, you know, I'll, I'll use a stupid one. There was one of the hospitals that had a maternity and baby ward, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a way that within certain Orthodox circles, maternity and baby wards, like kind of have certain words within them that are more culturally sensitive or insensitive. And for instance, um, you know, in the Orthodox Jewish world, natural birth would be a phrase that would be a catchphrase that would catch certain women, particularly if they're having large families and they're having, you know, they've had a C-section, they're interested in either a feedback or they're interested in a natural birth or stuff like that. Those are attractive. Those are like little attractive sound bites. So if you can stick words that are attractive and culturally sensitive um, at the same time, then win, win, win. Also, with right, the like when you say culturally culturally sensitive, that you would say something like a natural birth as opposed to a vaginal birth, because that would correct. be a word that would be correct. like very correct. insensitive. Okay, exactly correct. And you know, particularly if you're paying thousands of dollars to put that up at a bus stop in a public place, um, that's within a more Hasidic part of the community, for argument's sake, or stuff like that. You just need to know what you're in for, right? And kind of understand that if you want to be attractive, that you're sensitive, like, because all of them had the words culturally sensitive on their ads, sometimes contradicting it within the verbiage used. So Got it. that was, you know, a piece of that. Got it. That, that makes sense. So tell me, tell me how links came to be. Okay. So just the, for this, we need to kind of take a trip to my background. <laughs> so um, when I was two years old, my mother was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. I was an only child and she had been diagnosed and given about six weeks to live. Thank God she looked the doctor square in the eye and she said, you're not God and you won't decide how long I live. Tell me what you can do for me. And whatever it was that he discussed then with her in terms of her treatment plan was what she went for. And she actually battled it for about seven years. And she battled it incredibly so that I had an actually really, really happy childhood in the strangest ways that that will sound. Um, and then when I was nine, my mother passed away actually at the beginning of my fourth grade school year. 
And because I was an only child, it was actually a doubly lonely experience because A, I didn't know any other kids who had lost a parent. I lived in Muncie at the time, which was a very small community at the time. There was not one other kid in my school who had lost a parent. And when my father, I once confronted him and I said, Ta, tell me one other person in this town who lost a parent. He found someone who was 40 years old and he said, when she was a child, she lost a parent. And that was really isolating for me because there was like nobody kid size like me that I could look at and say, okay, you're normal. Ah, so maybe I can be normal. Um, and to add insult to injury, like I said, the fact that I was an only child made it just doubly, you know, a, lone, a lonesome experience. So it was kind of sitting in my brain. What had happened was that when I went to camp when I was like 13, there it opened a whole new world for me because, you know, there were kids coming from different communities and obviously there were going to be some who had lost a parent, which of course there were. And I started making these friendships. And then I had this one kid who actually today is one of our best volunteers. And she was in the play and she was screaming something in the play, mama, mama. And one of the counselors said, that is so cruel. How did they give her this kind of part after she lost her mother? And I said, ooh, she lost her mother. That's all I needed to hear. I confronted her after play practice and I said, did your mother die? And she looked at me like I fell from the moon and she started walking off on me. And I said, no, really, like when, when was your mother, like when did your mother pass away? And she said like a year and a half ago or something like that. And I said, well, mine died when I was nine and we sat on the grass. I think it must've been for three hours. Just even curiously, I don't even think we were sad. We were just incredibly curious about one another of like, wait, how did you do this? Right. And it was the start of those kind of friendships that always led me to believe that peer support for kids in this type of situation can be even more effective than most therapeutic interventions. And this is coming from a person who does a heavy load of therapy referrals. There is something within the unique power of a friend who has a kid size, you know, mind saying something like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm also scared of that. And it's like, boom, done. You're, you're halfway through. So when I was 21, right, I think I was like either 21 or 22. And I went on an A-time Shabbaton weekend, which was for those who were struggling with infertility. And I met Miriam Lieberman there. And Miriam Lieberman had co-authored a book with Dr. Neil Goldberg called Saying Goodbye. And it was for teens who were dealing with loss within the Jewish community. And I said to her, Miriam, you know, nobody ever wrote a book about grief for teens. And she said, she says, wow. So I told her a little bit about my story. And she said, you know, you should really start a magazine for kids who've lost a parent. Um, and she said, somebody else had given her this idea. And I said, great, I'll call that person. Well, long story short, that person said to me, great, it was an idea of mine, but you need to take it and run with it because you actually have this personal experience, so you know what to do. So we started a magazine because I was young and crazy. And like I said, I took out two shelves out of my pantry, put an iMac in there. My husband designed it, and I wrote almost the whole magazine under pen names. Okay, um, one second. You started a magazine, so you... <laughs> pause so you write yes. all the articles um i like that you use different pen names that's amazing to make and it seem I, like i did get a therapist to write a column and i got miriam lieberman to write something called open letter which she's still writing 14 years later um and then i got one or two other girls to write but really the bulk of the magazine was like me under fakie cats sarah this and that 
Every that's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. Okay. But when you, how do you make a magazine exist? Like, so what did you just send it to a printer? Okay. How do you so know who to print- send it to? <laughs> okay. So here's a little fun fact. My husband grew up in a home that where my father-in-law's business had been graphic design and printing. So nice. that was a little bit of the easy part. So my husband designed the magazine for me and we got actually funding to have this magazine printed and mailed. But here was the bigger piece. I was going to do this all sensitively to the kids and teens who lost a parent. So I felt it would be insensitive for something to show up at their door that they never asked for. Like, who says they're ready for this? Who says they want to talk about this? Like, why was I doing this? So what I did was I I printed 50 copies. I got permission from 10 families who I knew, like who I'd gotten to know, to send it to their families. And I didn't know more families other than like, oh, my cousin's sister has a, you know, a neighbor this way. I wasn't going to send it like that. So what I did with the other 40 copies was I mailed them to principals and rabbis within the community. Mm. And I enclosed a note and I said, this is a new magazine for teens who lost a parent. If you have a family that you think can benefit from this, show them the magazine. And if they're interested, here's how they can contact us and get on the list. It was all free. And it was just a question of whether they wanted it. Um, That was a very good strategic move um, because it allowed the families to find out about it from people who they knew and trusted. And it also gave me a lot of clout that when a parent said to a rabbi or a principal within the community, like, I don't know what this thing is that my daughter is reading. And they were able to say, no, 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 I got a copy. I saw it. It's good. Right. So, so we automatically got that approval. Exactly. So it worked for me on a lot of fronts. I did have an educational team that reviewed every issue before I went out. I will say that I was young and I was very cognizant of that, of the fact that I have my own personal experience, which will bring with it tremendous value and also tremendous blind spots. And so I had- What do you mean edu- by that? So what I mean by blind spots, and I think this to be true of a lot of nonprofits, you know, we start from a place of like, right, I had a lonely experience. I had a lot of pain. I lost my mother. So I should know, so to speak, everything that a child who lost a parent wants to or needs to know. That's not really true because my experience is my experience. It's not their experience. And, and imposing my experience and projecting my experience on another person would be the most unfair thing in the world and would be the unhealthiest thing in the world, right? If I need them to grieve the way I grieved, that's not, that's, that's just not healthy. Right. I mean, I guess so it makes sense that because- The blind spots would be is that sometimes, let's say, I would think it's normal to be angry with people who make comment X, right? Let's say I would right. think that way. Um, I happen not to be that kind of person. I don't know, most people's comments, I can get angry on behalf of someone else, but I kind of have, like, they used to make fun of me in my family, like, there's a bottle of oil that spilled on me and never washed off, like, everything just washes right off. (laughs) um, So that's not something that gets me. But let's say, right, there was something that if somebody said that, that would irk me. To include that within an article of, like, this is something people should never say, wait, maybe it's helpful to somebody else, right? Okay. So having an objective party look through it and say, could this be triggering? Could this be inappropriate? Could this be something that maybe we shouldn't include? I'll give you a great example that we had something that was vetoed. We had a one-time column called foot and mouth. 
and it was about the funny comments people make and they do they make some bizarre comments i'm sure like you can't imagine so in that one we had one one of our girls wrote some fantastic comments lines that people said and it was absolutely hilarious after that went out we got a lot of complaints um both from the families and from people within the community saying you know a lot of these people didn't mean to say something bad and the way it was written was in a way that made it sound like people are out to get you and that is such an unhealthy attitude to foster within a child or a teen who already thinks somewhat that the world is out to get them okay i hear that um, and so the column was shut down it was that one time we printed it and that was it and it's not like we haven't included funny stuff but it's been in other contexts and it's been in smarter ways so yes yeah, so having someone who kind of gave me an objective view was a, a, a really good piece for me right okay so you have this magazine and it's printing out of your pantry and it's and it's going and doing i know now that this is an office with multiple people on staff and it's your full-time job and all of that so what was it that made you decide okay it's it's a successful magazine it's something that people you know obviously need i'm going to turn this into a full-blown nonprofit that's going to be my full-time job um, so it actually was a trajectory of a few years. What basically happened was after the magazine was out for a year, um, I put in a little ad in the magazine and I said, if anyone wants to actually meet face to face, um, I'd love to meet you. Here's my address. This is the time. This is the place. Show up if you want to. I don't even think I asked them to RSVP. What year was that? <laughs> in 2007. A simpler time. Yes. I wouldn't recommend doing this now. No, and I probably wouldn't do it for a lot of reasons, but oh well. Okay, so I put that out there. Seven girls show up, two from Lakewood, I remember, three from Brooklyn, I think one from Muncie, and I don't remember where the others came from. Basically, they sat around the table in my dining room, and we schmoozed, literally, talk about simpler times. I don't think I had anything much out there other than chips and jelly beans. And Sounds like a fun party we, to me. Yeah, and we, we schmoozed, and we schmoozed about what they'd like to see happening from here on. And that was a really important piece that we still use a lot, is that we create programs sometimes as adults that we think teens would like. And sometimes we forget that we're not teens for a few years and that things have changed. So we try to check in with our teens and our kids all the time. Like, what is it that you want to see happening? What do you need happening? So in this in-person meeting, the girl said, well, we'd love if you would make a weekend. And I said, like, I'm telling you, I was young and crazy. I said, oh, great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> and I actually went about putting something together. And I said to myself, it's really going to be interesting. I wonder who's going to register for something like this. And 50 girls registered. And it was fascinating to me. It was the first time in America that, um, certainly within the Orthodox Jewish community, but I want to say that even within a lot of other communities, that a bunch of kids who had lost a parent got together under one roof. It was an extraordinarily intense weekend. Um, we had so much crying there Friday night, I cannot even tell you. Like when we think back about it, it was unbelievable. It was really, it was like this release of something huge, of people realizing like, you know, in a strange way, you wouldn't attach parental death to the word stigma and shame. But because just by virtue of the fact that it wasn't a conversation that people like to have, right? People like to sidestep it a lot and like, let's make believe everything's going really well for you. 
um, it created a certain barrier of like, I'm not allowed to talk about this, even though it makes no sense. So this release created something bigger than any of us could have ever imagined. So that weekend was mind blowing. Um, even though when we look back at it, we laugh our heads off. We did the program till 11 p.m. and we made a curfew after that. Like, why wouldn't anybody go to sleep? <laughs> and now I know, of course, is that nobody goes to sleep on our weekends. But, you know, it was a lot of those kind of things. But it was, it was really, it was a beautiful, beautiful weekend. Something like we've never, we can't even go back to that because it's such a first. Um, but from that was an outgrowth of like, let's get together more often. Let's not wait for once a year. So we started having events and stuff like that. And that was pretty much how things started growing. So I hired a secretary who worked in my pantry at first until we got an office pro bono. Um, and she worked in my pantry while I worked for Bina Magazine. So I was going to work and somebody else was staying in my pantry. Or at some point she was in the office and I was still going to work. And it was working somewhat, but it was also challenging because you can't really have two full-time jobs. And as I was growing in my career at Bina, I was becoming busier and busier. And I almost found her to be a nuisance when she called me because it was like, oh, I can't talk right now. Like, what do you want from me? Lady, if you have an organization that you're running that needs to be run, you can't do that. Right. <laughs> like you I mean, get- listen, she ne- you are her boss, for lack of a better word. and Right. And she's like, I need to know whether you want to mail it like this or mail it like that. Like... I can't make this decision without you. You're footing the bill. So like, what's right. going to be right. And, and funding was getting a little bit more challenging and stuff of that sort. And at some point, um, I think it was six years ago. So we were about eight years in, she said to me, okay, I'm having another baby and I am staying home. And I panicked mm-hmm. because I had worked with this one person for eight years and she had done everything. And it kind of flitted through my brain that maybe I would like quit my job and do this. And then it quickly flitted out. And then I hired someone else that did not work out. She worked for us for about nine, 10 months. It did not work out. Um, she left. And at that point, my husband, uh, uh, this, this former secretary of mine, I think she called my husband and she said, get your wife to quit her job. She needs to do this full time. She is what the organization needs. And I quit my job, <laughs> which was okay. very scary because you have to realize I was giving up at least 50% of my salary because one of the conditions that I made with my donors at that point was that I was going to take whatever salary the secretary was getting paid, that it was not okay. going to cost them more if I was going to do this. And so I quit my job and I quit a job that I loved I also felt at that point, it was very right for my family, for me to start becoming my own boss, where I wouldn't have to feel uncomfortable if I needed to take a day off and be with my kids for one reason or another. So it was, it was the timing, like they say. And in a nutshell, at that point, I came into the office after a year of being in the office, I realized, okay, I need to hire a bookkeeper. And and that was like, sort of how I grew my staff of like, every time another need came up, I was like, okay, I need another person. And then I needed another part-time secretary and I called my former secretary and I said, hmm, maybe you can start coming back. How old are those babies now? (laughs) Yeah, under different terms and conditions. And she came back and she's been back with us for the last three, four years, I think already. So she was only out for like a year and a half. Um, And then we grew it. Like you said, you know, right now there are six people in-house usually. And then there's more that work from home on different pieces. The budget is about 750000 Wow. And I am responsible 
for funding that. So my main job, what's been interesting is that I've transitioned, so to speak, from really doing the programming to a lot more of the fundraising and administrative end of things. My heart's still in the programming, which means that I still like to come up with the creative ideas and I do a lot of those. But the nice part is I really hate the details and my secretaries love details. So if I give them a basic idea, they run with it. Right. So you can come up with the ideas and they can execute it. Yeah. And that's that, that I have to say, there's nothing better than that. And I have to say that in terms of the magazine, which is still going on, and it's one of the few magazines that are not emailed, they are actually physically mailed. And the reason for that is privacy. Emails can be forwarded to anyone and everyone. And because kids write their feelings, they're more comfortable with the fact that it's mailed. There's just less of it getting all over the place. Right. Well, that makes sense to me. I want to, I'm, see the work that you do is so specific to the, to the people that you serve, right? There are, there aren't that many children who've lost a parent that it's just not common, but what does happen is that you end up gaining all of these insights into the grief process overall. Um, and into how different you see you see people probably at their at their best and their worst because you're you're coming in when families have just gone through this crazy this you know there there may have been a prolonged illness there may not have been there you're coming in when like when everything is falling apart and and offering your help and I'm curious if there's some is there, is there such a thing as like a typical experience? Is there such a thing as a common thread when it comes to the, the people who you serve and the way that they handle their situation? Probably not, but I'm, I'm going to make two very interesting distinctions here. Number one is that as much as it's not that common, because we serve Orthodox Jewish kids in the United States, Canada, Europe, and pretty much anywhere where they're English speaking, we wind up, we're servicing over 180. Uh, 180, I'm sorry, 880 families. Wow. Um, given the fact that within um, the Orthodox Jewish families, we have an average family with at least two kids home, you're talking about a lot of kids. So a lot of kids means that I've learned that nobody has the same journey. What I have learned, I also am very careful, is that I don't go into families, actually, until at least six weeks have passed. Why? And the reason for that is... Because, well, I actually just had an interesting experience because I just found this proven. But what I've seen is that families are, thank God, surrounded by a lot of people in the beginning, whether it's people who were there with them during the times of illness, whether it's their extended family, whatever it is, right? There's a lot of people, people, people kind of all around. Um, and family's very vulnerable and there's just a lot of noise. What I like to do is because we stay the long term, I don't like to come in in people's most vulnerable states because then it's mortifying to them two years later. They don't want a relationship with that kind of person. And also because I like to come in when the people are gone. That makes sense. You know, because there's a very formalized point. mourning pro process. You know, you yeah. have, so you have the funeral so and then the burial and then the Shiva and all of that. Yeah. So you, exactly. once all that clears away, that's when you come in. So I, I, I'm someone who always like, I, I knew grief from my own perspective and from what I've seen, but I more recently, I would say in the last 18 months, I've really taken to formally learning a lot more about grief. So one of the things I did was just a couple months ago, I went to this Our House Grief Conference in California, which was fascinating. Um, 
And one of the things that they mentioned is they don't allow anyone into their support groups also until about eight weeks have passed. Um, and the reason is she described it, Freda Wasserman, who's a social worker, she described it as tunnel, grief tunnel vision. What happens in the beginning is that they can only be all consumed by their own grief. They cannot meet up with other people who also have grief. They don't want to know about your grief and somebody mm -hmm. else's grief. It's too hard. So I think that's also a very big piece is that because a lot of our support systems are peer-based, you don't want to expose them in the beginning to something that's too overwhelming for them. It's like, I, I can't read that there are other people going through this. I can't hear that from other people. I can't, you know, so that's, that's definitely a, a big piece of the model. I will say something very interesting that I think people should be aware of, and this may help any adults who lost a parent as a child. Delayed grief is a very real thing. So when we have a child who's lost a parent when they're four, six, 11 even, right? And their brains are not fully formed where they can cognitively process this as a thing. Most likely, they're going to wind up processing this in their late, mid to late teens, and sometimes even adulthood. And parents are becoming more aware of that. And one of the things that I try to do is mitigate the shame where people shouldn't feel ashamed of the fact, one second, like, shouldn't I be over this? This happened to me 10 years ago or 15 years ago. On Instagram, I'll get DMs all the time from men and women in their 40s and 50s saying, I know this is mortifying. I lost my mother when I was 15. Does it make sense that I still sometimes grieve? Yeah. You're grieving in the future. You're grieving for every milestone that that parent's not there for. That's a very real thing. And I think when people like acknowledge that and feel that and, you know, are okay with that and process that, that's, that's where healing starts. So sometimes parents say to me, okay, so what can I do now to prevent it? And there's very little. Um, is it good to try to prevent it or is it something that you just need to feel? Well, there is, yeah, there are certain healthy things. Look, you know, even keeping an open door, like I said to a parent, you know, even the fact that there is age appropriate conversations that happen at this age and then telling the child that, you know, whenever you're ready and you want to talk more or you want to learn more or you want to this, you know, we're open. And if the child comes at the age of 13, 15, 17 and says, you know, I'm feeling somewhat anxious now. I, I think I might die, right? You know, other people in my life might also die just the same way daddy died, you know, all this kind of stuff or, you know, feeling lonely and upset and angry and whatever it is that they're feeling. If a parent at that point or anybody any adult in that child's life at that point says, this is normal. This is okay. There are ways to process this. By the way, one of the most effective ways for that is what's called somatic experiencing therapy. Um, and at that point, making that okay completely takes away the shame and allows the child to begin the healing process. So yeah, that's kind of a preventative, if you will. And also, you know, there's certain pieces that we just can't prevent because they're part of our life cycle and being okay with that you know, is, is, is key here. That, that, yeah, I guess that that makes sense to me. It's, I'm, if you don't mind my asking, can we talk about your father for a little bit? Sure. So, sure. so you recently um, in adulthood lost your father who was ill with Alzheimer's for, I think you said 12 years, right? I'm trying to do the math, but that should be around right. So, so a while, a very, a very long time. And um, I remember at the Shiva, you telling me that you experienced that, that, you know, you had all sorts of different ideas flying around your head just because you experienced this as an adult now, um, mm -hmm. losing a parent again. What, what was something that you learned from that? You know, comparing, obviously, you know, you can't really mm -hmm. compare it, but just how is it different now uh, losing your father as an adult versus losing your mother as a kid? 
So I think for me, there were two very big factors. One was as a kid, I actually never had, you know, Shiva, which is like that formal seven days after the funeral where we kind of well, yeah, you were nine. permission to grieve. That's what really Shiva is. Shiva is a lot of permission to grieve. So what happened for me was that I had the option of going back to school and I actually chose that. I had no interest in staying home. Um, so I went back to school and the problem with that is that kind of haunted me for a lot of years when I wanted to grieve is that I never had that space to be like where it was like appropriate now on a random Monday to say, well, I'm going to choose seven days now where I can grieve. Um, this grief process as an adult has been a tremendously cathartic. It also was a beautiful experience for me because I knew it was coming and there were a lot of things that I would have liked to have said to my father and I got to say them. And it was just, it was a really different process for me than as a child that although my mother was sick for all those years, I didn't realize it. Like I, I realized she was sick, but I also had strep. Like I was also sick once in a while. So like, what does this mean? Um, I couldn't quite process in my brain that she was dying. So I think this like unprepared versus prepared definitely was a biggie. But I think also as an adult, I had so many more tools under my belt to process this grief process and to appreciate every step. I know that sounds crazy, but it was like, I was so appreciative of every person who came to Shiva. I was so appreciative of having the opportunity to speak about him. I was so appreciative of just the fact that he had lived a very full, beautiful life for as many years as God chose to give him. And it was just, it was a, a completely different experience in that way. And it was very healing for me that a lot of the people who came to the Shiva had known my mother as well. So they were able to share with me stuff, whereas it would have been uncomfortable for me to just call them, you know, on a random day and get that. But what I did do was I asked people for their phone numbers and emails. And I, I do plan to keep in touch with some of these people and get more information, you know, at a later point. Right. Yeah. It's, I guess it kind of makes sense that someone who would have known your father would also have known your mother. And I will say this, I was, I, you know, I did pay a shiva call by you. You were the happiest person sitting shiva I've ever seen. It, uh, it, no, to a point where I felt like I almost had to explain that to people sometimes because, you know, it sounds really bad when like somebody dies and the person sitting there is completely at peace. But by the way, one of the things if I could say is that grievers are the most judged people in the universe, right? Like if they're too sad, everyone's like, oh my gosh, she's falling apart. If people are too put together, they're like, oh, can't believe it. You think maybe she didn't have a good relationship with him? Yeah. And then if you have people who are just um, not interested in talking to people. They're like, I don't know, why doesn't she want that? Oh, she must be depressed, right? And that's something very important for all of us to bear in mind. Like if we have a friend who's lost someone and is grieving, every single grief process is going to look different. It just will. It's right. going to look so, so different for everyone. And that's what I think what I meant right at the beginning when I was saying about projecting my experience is that if the grief process was one thing for me, it was dependent on the kind of relationship I had. You know, one of the things that I was very lucky with is that both my parents were fabulous people. That doesn't mean they were perfect people, but they were fabulous people who I loved very much. Some of the kids who have a parent who passed away either didn't have a good relationship with their parent or the parents were divorced and there was an alienation in, in there where they didn't have much contact with that parent. There's a very different grief process, both as a child and an adult when you're dealing with that kind of situation. And that's why I think we can never say that there's one linear grief process. Right. And it's, 
it's, you know, when you're talking about people who are grieving being judged, I recently had a, a very close family member of mine um, sitting Shiva, and I did reach out to you when all of that was going down. And I have to say, there's, there's something, there was something about the way that, the way that you were very, I don't even know what the word, it wasn't like you told me what to do. It was, I don't know, I don't know, validating is the right word, but there is, you, you seem to know exactly what to say at exactly the right time. Um, when, and I guess that maybe just comes with experience and you unfortunately have a and lot of experience And I have to tell you that this. I'm always petrified that I don't know what I'm saying because there's a piece of me that's just like, I don't know, this is her situation. I don't know if this is going to work for her. Right. But I think we're, by the way, we all have to just know that we can be sensitive and try and, you know, do our best. But right. I'm sorry, go. Is, is, no, I'm, that's, that's what I want to get to. Is there a rule of thumb when you're talking to someone who, like, is, uh, listen, everyone listening to this, I'm sure at some point will in their life go pay a shiva call, will know someone who has mm -hmm. lost some someone, you know, whether, they're, whether they are sitting formal shiva or not, um, can you give me, I know you said it's hard to give, you know, do and don't says, but is there anything that you should absolutely never do? Or is there a rule of thumb that you could follow that you will most likely always get a, a positive result? Is there a right or wrong way to go about trying to there comfort are, someone? There are some, there are some lists out there of people's do's and don'ts. I think they vary from person to person, but I will say this, go where the person's at. You know, I've gone to Shiva Homes where, you know, I had a friend who was sitting in the kitchen and she just said, she goes, if I sit there one more minute, I'm going to make so many inappropriate jokes. <laughs> and I said, good, try me, press that button. And she said some pretty crazy death jokes. And we were howling with laughter. <laughs> somebody definitely gave us a look, right? But my place was to be where the mourner is. And if that's where she wanted to go, that's where I needed to go. And the flip side, I've gone to Shiva Homes, a very close friend who I can talk to every day for two hours. I've gone in there and I've seen they are just not in a place to talk. My job was just to sit there and just be, literally just be, whether it's in silence, whether it's just saying, just want you to know I'm here. And literally I could have left after 10 minutes. Um, you know, it's really very much reading body language, like in any good relationship. And it's also reading just the mood of the room. The one don't I could say is that usually details about whatever disease that person suffered from or whatever circumstances, whether it was an accident, whether it was, you know, whatever circumstances caused, was the cause of death, probably details about that are probably one of the worst offenses that I've seen in Shiva homes. And the other pretty bad offense in most people's books is that if, unless the person's sitting Shiva, is the one who is holding this kind of conversation, having secondary conversations going on within the audience. And I will say I did have that one time within my Shiva, but me being me, I took the reins back. But I had a couple of ladies in there who I said something about like my father had eaten a lot of meals as a young person at this person's house. And somebody turned to another person. She said, oh, you know who that is, right? Which is totally appropriate, fine. But then they went, did you know, by the way, and they continued a conversation between each other about this family of like, oh, did you know that her cousin is neighbors with my daughter-in-law and did this and, and she has a baking business? You know, a baking business? Have you ever ordered cakes from her? I'm not joking. Like this was the kind of conversation that was going on. And that usually can be like confusing to the mourner of like, okay, what do I do with this now? Right. I don't care about cookies. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I that that yeah that uh, that makes perfect sense to me. I said after um, it was my mother who was sitting shiver recently for her father, and after it was a very overwhelming 
Shiva. My grandfather was a very prominent um, person in the community. And there, uh, the funeral home told us that there were probably about a thousand people at his Levaya. So, yeah. it, and the Shiva was a madhouse. I can imagine a madhouse, right? An absolute madhouse. And afterwards, and like, and, and I was there almost every day. And every night after, you know, after we locked the door, um, yeah, and after it was all over, I turned to um, to my husband, to my brother, and to my mom, and I was like, I feel like I could write a book now of what mm-hmm. not to do in a shiva house because we saw some, yeah, there, you know, it was some. What crazy would you things. say were like some things that you loved or hated? So the main thing that I would say, and I think that this is particular because it was a very overwhelming shiva. Um, my grandparents' house is not that big, and there were five mm-hmm. people sitting. And, and he was a very prominent person. So there were just hundreds of people in and out of the house every day. And I would say that if it's past nine o'clock and you are the only person there, get out. Like the people, the people are exhausted. They've been there all day. They're emotionally overwhelmed. Everything. it, It was just so overwhelming that we would have, and it happened almost every night that someone would come at like 830, you know, when there was a few people there. And then they would stay until, you know, they would, and then, you know, the other few people would, would circle out and then it would be nine o'clock and then it would be nine fifteen, and then it would be nine thirty, and then it would be 10 o'clock. And this one person has just been sitting there for an hour. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes you could tell that they're like grasping for straws to keep the conversation going. And you don't want to be the person to say, get out. But mm-hmm. all that you want is for that person to leave. That, that that I would say would probably be number one. The second one would also be don't bring unsolicited food. <laughs> no, really though. Because that was a big part of, I took on that job of coordinating the food. Mm-hmm. And we had tons, like we had everything lined up. Like all of the meals were covered by mm-hmm. like within like maybe a half an hour after the funeral, like everything mm-hmm. was covered. Um, and for mm-hmm. those who are unfamiliar, there are two traditions that are kind of important to this story. And that is that the people who are mourning, which are the immediate relatives of, uh, of the person who died, um, generally don't prepare things for themselves. So their people will bring food, both as like a gesture of goodwill and to help out. They genuinely want to be helpful. And the other thing that's important is that there is generally a tradition that the food that goes into a shiva house does not come out of the shiva house, that it should stay there. And that's, again, a goodwill kind of tradition so that people don't walk off with food that is meant for the people who are mourning. The problem is, is that if you have a family of five people and three lunches for 15 people show up every single day, you have mm-hmm. an overwhelming amount of food and you have not enough fridge space and it's so, and everything is already so overwhelming around you. And then there's also like a giant bagel bar that shows up every single day. Right. Th- those would be my two main things. Like don't, oh. don't, don't stay late and, and don't bring unsolicited food. Ask, feel free to ask. And if they tell you that they don't need it, they do not need it. I promise you they don't need it. Oh, I'm telling you, I had two friends who actually did the best unsolicited food thing in the entire universe one of them stocked my freezer with frozen foods which were so helpful genius for the week after it was like there was frozen pizza like all the dumb things when you have no brain afterwards because i think what people don't realize and this is probably where i you know where, where links does the bulk of its work is after right right afterwards it's extremely overwhelming and when i say people go home i mean that 
in all its glory, right? Everybody goes home from Sheva. Family support slowly begins to peter out. Um, friends, you know, definitely are going back to work lives and everything, right? Nobody can stop right now. And when there's a random Wednesday where a widow or a widower or a teen, you know, just feels totally overwhelmed, it's so nice when there's something in the freezer there that's just like a savior right now. Right. Um, you know, that was, that was definitely very helpful. But I think what you're pointing at is, again, you know, just knowing is that we're there for the other person for what they need. You know, one of the things that we do, and I think we're probably going to run out of time in a couple minutes, but I think one of the things that we do a lot of is individual case management is one of our services. And I always say with that is I never know what I'm going to get when we start with a family. What are the needs of this family? What is it that they need to make happen for them? And we do the best we can to network with other organizations. So it's not like we're funding everything on our own. We know of what's available for this family and we try to piece it together. But one of the things that we do a lot of is therapy referrals. I meet with, I've met over 150 therapists in the last two years personally. So I can assess who works well with grief, who doesn't. And then I kind of track it through my referrals, which has been super helpful. But so people will often say to me, so who's a good therapist for grief? And I'd be like, no, let's go through what kind of grief, what's this child struggling with? What's the teen struggling with? What's going on at home now? What was the previous relationship with the person? What in their opinion is what they need help with? And then we'll figure out who's the right fit for them. You know, so it's very much, it's, it's so individual for everybody. And I think that's also partially what's so overwhelming is like, there's no script or perfect recipe that exists out there. And that's just part of the process. And I think when people accept that both for themselves and understanding that the people around them may not grieve like the next person around them, like your mother may have a different grief process than an aunt or an uncle. Right. right. Um, and I think that's something that people just need to be aware of is that we're just so different one from the other in every way. And grief is not going to be any different. Right. It's true. This has been an eye opening and Oh, it's always so good to chat with you. Um, I, I, I just feel good. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you and about links, where can they go? Okay, so we have a website called we'reinittogether.org. And there's a long story behind that, which is for another time. W-E-R-E-I-N-I-T and then the word together.org. And then on Instagram, we're at links underscore Schleimies Club. And then I am on LinkedIn, which is where I'm probably most passionately talking about tales of a leader under my name, Sarif Bacone. Okay, fabulous. And the last question that I want to ask you, and I should also note that all of those are going to be in the show notes, swipe up on the cover art to access those. Um, Sarifka, to you, what does it mean to make an impact? Wow, you know, it's amazing. I've listened to so many of your shows and I've heard this question. And yet when you just asked it to me, I'm like, what does it mean to me to make yeah. an impact? I think to know that what you're doing for someone else is impacting them, not impacting me. Meaning to say, to do something that's actually beneficial for somebody else, not because it's good for me. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sarifka. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was such a great conversation. Thanks for listening. In the show notes this week, you'll find direct links to the Links organization. If you could use their help, please reach out. They're fabulous there. I'm also including a link to the Itty Bitty Impact Paper Doll Set. It's loads of fun and totally free. 
Reminder that there's a 40% off sale happening right now that helps nurses get the PPE they need. That link is also in the show notes. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blogs slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. It'll make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki at Squids. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together.